This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Welcome back to an episode of Ask Isaac. I am going to try to sneak this episode in real quick because I got a lot of questions that came in in the last week. Uh, sneak, in, sneak it in before um, I hit the road in just a few hours here to head down to Florida. I'm doing a speaking gig at the University of Florida. So uh, let's see what we can do. I've got a bunch of questions. So um, I had two questions on adoption, on what the process was like. My wife and I adopted, and I'll get into that um, briefly. But those those will take me a little bit longer. So I'm going to put those two questions together at the end, and I'm going to see if I can hammer through these other uh, interesting, sometimes bizarre <laughs> questions first. Okay, here we go. Chris Smith, <laughs> if Mises came back to life, that's the economist Ludwig von Mises, if Mises came back to life and you were forced into a death match with him, would you try to win for your own survival or would you take a dive so Mises could continue his exploration <laughs> into economics? Oh, man, I don't know. That's like those, you know, if you were on a desert island, would you rather whatever questions. Uh, I always want to cheat those questions. So being the competitive guy that I am, I would sweep the leg. I mean, I would just take Mises down. But I wouldn't. I would find a way to not kill him because, you know, I would want to, to pin him somehow and then, you know, show mercy and then everybody at the Thunderdome would learn a new concept and their lives would be changed. Uh, Kirk Wilson, I have collected many Lego sets. What kind did you have? Uh, Kirk, I had so many Lego sets when I was a kid. It's almost like hard to categorize. And back in those days, they didn't have all these um, really highly specific sets and like branded sets with different shows and stuff. Back in my day, we had to build it ourselves, dang it. You know how hard it was to try to build a lightsaber by breaking other pieces and you know, fusing them together? Um, I had a lot of, uh, there was a, a series of like underwater Legos, Aquanauts or something to that effect. Um, there were sort of two teams. There was like a blue team and a red team. They had different names, Aquanauts and something else, Aqua Sharks. I had a bunch of those. Uh, I had an airport set. I had a marina. Uh, but most of them I would, you know, build once and then I would break them down and, and reformulate them. And I had a Lego city. I mean, it was huge, huge city. And I actually had two giant tables, one with the city and then one that was lower. And it just so happened to be blue. And I had all the underwater ones there. So it was like, it, you know, they were underwater. It was, it was massive. I had like turnstile bridges. I had all kinds of stuff. Uh, in fact, sometimes I f I'll find in, in the Legos, which I've given to my kids now, this giant bucket of them, or this bin, I'll find uh, little things that I made, like signs that would say, like, Bob's Fish and Chips and stuff that I, I would, like, draw on with marker. So I had all kinds of Lego sets. I also had some uh, some castle ones, you know, some of the older uh, period, I guess you would call them, sets. A um, little bit of Lego Technic, not very much, but yeah, you name it, it was in there. Uh, a question without a name f says, uh, how, to, I was going to say a question without a name from, that wouldn't make any sense at all. How to get over the loneliness that comes with following an entrepreneurial path. That is something that is not talked about a ton. Um, but 
it is incredibly true. It is, there's something just profoundly lonely once you make that decision to jump in and, and start a business to create a business of your own where there's not, there's, there's, it's like, there's not that many people you can talk to about some of the emotional and psychic sort of mental struggles that you're going through. Um, because there are things that, you know, up until I launched Praxis, I had never had those kind of struggles and difficulties and challenges and like fears and doubts. Um, I remember not long after, maybe three, four months after I launched it, I was, I was in an airport and I was just, I just started crying. I just was like overcome. I was so stressed. I just started crying and mainly because, um, you know, I felt like I, I had wanted to, I wanted to have someone I could talk to who knew me really well and who knew sort of entrepreneurship well and was older and whatever else. Um, my brother was probably the most, and still is probably the most important uh, element there because he's, you know, he's he's only a year and a half older. But growing up, our dad was uh, in a wheelchair, had a closed head injury, still does, um, from a car accident he was in, and so, you know, he wasn't sort of there in a traditional sense. So my my older brother has always been, uh, you know, kind of a a, a role model. Uh, even though, Levi, if you're listening, I'm still better than you at basketball and everything else. Um, a role model and somebody that I've always looked to. And, and he uh, preceded me by several years in the entrepreneurial path, seven or eight years at least. Um, and so he's he's been huge. But the other thing, the other thing that I never cared as much about until I launched my own company is other entrepreneurs in terms of like writings. Like there are certain books and um, just people's lives that I thought were interesting before, but having launched a business, they're life-changing. The book Zero to One by Peter Thiel, which is a recent book, I think if I wasn't in the process of building this business, I would be like, okay, that's mildly interesting, but it's it's life-changing to me. And even the lives of um, people like uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt is one, who have done amazing entrepreneurial things, they become so much more useful and instructive for me. And they help me not feel as alone. Um, they help me not feel as alone. So I think other people who have done it uh, is, a, is a short answer to that question. Okay, I've got a couple questions here from Peter Niger. Uh, all good questions. Thanks, Peter. It, you know, it's great doing this Ask Isaac, these episodes and the submission process. So I don't have to talk to my friends anymore. If they want to talk to me, they've got to submit a form on the website and I'll answer it. No, not really. Um, but kind of, I do hate phone calls. <laughs> okay, Peter asks, if you could pick three people, living or dead, to act as your personal life coaches, who would they be and why? Um, that's that's really tough, primarily because I want to pick more than three. Um, I'm going to give you the two that I know immediately, and then number three will take a little, little more challenge. T.K. Coleman, my good friend, who is living. Um, we think he's been living for probably several thousand years. No one really knows how old he is. He's like a, you know ageless mystical monk of some kind. Um, T.K. Coleman, uh, Leonard Reed, and in T.K.'s case, I think nobody besides my wife probably knows me better, and T.K. is unflappable. I mean, unflappable, uh, unless Derek Rose from the Bulls gets injured, then he might break down crying. But other than that, um, in any situation, in any circumstance, and he... 
he is not, he can't, he basically can't be offended. So, you know, I could share with him anything and he'll always have, he has such a repository. He has read so much in so many fields and he has this crazy memory where he remembers quotes and uh, the, the salient points from every book and movie and podcast and you name it. Um, he has such a well to draw from that he's incredibly capable of sort of bringing all those mental resources to bear in that moment and sort of giving you something to cling on to that's not cheesy, even though I make fun of him for being cheesy on Facebook with his inspirational quotes. Uh, <laughs> he doesn't mess around and he's got something, whether it's whether it's telling me, Isaac, go watch this clip of Jordan in the, you know, 93 playoffs or whatever, or um, whether it's a quote from a book. Uh, Leonard Reed is one of my absolute heroes. He's the founder of the Foundation for Economic Education and a truly fascinating man. He wrote the little um, pamphlet, I Pencil, which is well known, but he wrote several other books. And I own, I think I own all of them. And many of them are very somewhat obscure. Um, I've just always felt this kind of, I don't know, spooky connection <laughs> to use uh that's a phrase from einstein no this this sort of connection to leonard reed um he was a force to be reckoned with um i mean he built the foundation for economic education a radical think tank um a a place for very radical ideas i mean some of his pamphlets conscience on the battlefield you know in the middle of of war he's arguing basically for pacifism openly and he was able to get um major industry heads on the board of his organization. He had people from uh, Ford Motor Company. He had people from, I mean, it was crazy. He had the amount of money he was able to raise to, to move this organization forward. Uh, still today in real dollars back at its height when, when Reed was alive would be by far the largest free market organization um, on, the, on the planet. And just a powerful and radical thinker um, and somebody who was really unique. He almost had this transcendentalism um, mixed with this really well-informed economic mind. And that's something that I really value. I like that intersection of those two uh, kind of mindsets. And then the third is the, where it gets really tough. I'd probably say either C.S. Lewis or Cornelius Vanderbilt. Uh, Lewis, I find immensely entertaining and um, just witty and also very warm and very accessible. Uh, you know, Lewis is somebody, if you're grieving, um, I would want to talk to him or if you just want to have a beer and, um, you know, make jokes or so, <laughs> he, he's, there's his, his writing, his ideas, they're, they're very poignant and very logically crisp, um, but very warm and approachable. Cornelius Vanderbilt to me is, is someone who, um, he reached a level of material success that is almost unfathomable. Um, and, I want to know, like, how do you deal with that? What's that like? And this, this man went through so many amazing things. I mean, competing with government monopolies in the steamship uh, industry early on or in the ferry, ferry industry. Um, and he had, he had things happen. You know, I'll have entrepreneurial struggles. Uh, a client or a customer will have a horrible experience or something like that. And I feel like it's the end of the world. Vanderbilt had some of his ships sink and people died on them, like dozens of people. And 
I don't know how, how he mustered the mental strength to overcome that kind of thing. And eventually what he ended up doing helped the lives of so many people and, and, and literally changed the world in so many wonderful ways. But that wouldn't have happened if that first setback and to call people dying on your watch, on your company's watch, a setback is such an understatement. Um, I want to know how, I mean, the, the level of, of obstacles someone like that overcame and the level of, I think, incomprehensible challenge that people don't think about with having that much wealth and success. What does that do? What is that like? Man, that's fascinating to me. Um, so I cheated and I picked four. Okay. Uh, Peter, again, what do you find the, to be the greatest tools to unlocking creativity? Do you think less traditional methods like meditation and psychedelic drugs have a place in the creative process? You know, it's funny these days, if you stick around sort of creativity circles or self-optimization circles, I don't even, I wouldn't even consider meditation and psychedelics less traditional. Uh, and meditation is obviously a huge tradition, um, in many parts of the world, um, going way, way back. But yeah, so I, uh, I, I think those have a place in the creative process. Um, meditation, which can mean a lot of different things, but I think in its most general sense, um, whatever specific incantation, uh, I think it's an incredibly powerful tool that I keep trying to use, and I do use, um, and I do enjoy meditating. Uh, it, it always seems to like make my day a little bit better, even if I just sit there with my eyes closed for 10 minutes and try to not think about anything. Um, Psychedelic drugs, personally, I don't have any experience with, but I find them absolutely fascinating. Uh, and I think they have a tremendous place in the creative process. I mean, some of the best creators and creations in human history, I would say a majority of them, if I'm just going to go off of like anecdotal off the top of my head, have involved the use of psychedelic drugs. Um, so I think there's something really powerful there. Uh, I wish there were not so many legal risks and the fact that so many of them are illegal makes it very hard at least for someone like me to i feel like it's hard to obtain sort of knowledge of like okay what would you use how would you use it, it it's such a closed and and high risk area because like who wants to get busted with a bunch of illegal drugs um that it's it feels very inaccessible in many ways um and uh that's that's i think that's a huge bummer because i think there's amazing uh, power in the use of some psychedelic drugs. Obviously, you know, just like any other kind of drug, I think you want to be smart. Um, it's like alcohol, right? There's something wonderful about having a beer at the end of a long day that just takes the edge off. And it's actually a, a, a quite a beautiful, wonderful experience. Um, pounding a, you know, 24 pack of Natty Ice uh, while you watch the lions and cry is not such a great experience. Um, okay. And what do you find to be my, what do I find to be my greatest tools to unlocking creativity? You know, there's nothing on earth that beats for me writing every single day. And in the ideal day, and I'm able to do this most of the time, I write before I do anything else. Uh, so I don't check any emails or do anything that puts me in um, response mode. There's a, there's a guy named Robert Fritz that has a book called, uh, the, is it called The I can't remember, something about creating. Um, but he talks about response orientation versus creative orientation. Um, and when you're taking in input and, and having to respond to it right away, you, you, you slide out of that creative orientation. Um, so before I do any of that, I sit down. Uh, if I have like a cup of coffee with me, that's great. I put on a playlist. It's usually a Moby playlist. Uh, it's just like sort of ethereal electronic music. And um, I sit in front of my blog and... I write 
I've got to write a post every single day. And it's amazing what that does. Once I force that to happen and I write, and by the way, this Moby playlist now, it's like I have this Pavlovian effect. I start, I just like, where's my laptop? I got to go start writing if I hear any Moby songs. Um, once I've written for the day, it's like my whole day feels wonderful because I've done something, I've created something, I've accomplished something. Uh, even days if, I've, if I'm like, feeling extra inspired and I, and I write three or four things that day. And then maybe if I'm traveling the next day, I'll, I'll queue up one for the next day's blog post that next day. I feel much worse if I haven't written anything original that day. And I've got to like, at least sit down and do something. Um, so to me, and that opens up all of my creativity for the rest of the day, creating begets creating. Uh, so that's the most powerful technique that I have found. I also make sure to consume new ideas every single day. And I walk outside every single day. I have a checklist of, of, five things that I have to do every single day. Um, one form of exercise, consume new ideas, walk outside, write, and um, make Praxis grow in some way. And I've got some categories of activities that fit into that. Okay, Luke asks, what is your favorite cigar? I love cigars. Uh, I don't know if I smoke them frequently enough or systematically enough to really genuinely have a favorite, but I would say some cigars that recently um, I've been into that are really consistently good for me are, um, I like almost anything by Alec Bradley. Uh, they have a really good affordable, um, like a good bang for the buck cigar called Black Market. Uh, of course, I also like the name too. feels very rebellious to smoke Black Market. Um, and there is one, there's actually one that I smoke a lot down here. There's a cigar shop near my home in Charleston. Uh, and they have like a deal with Alec Bradley and they made it, they made sort of a special series for them. And one is called Palmetto State and one is called Secession. Uh, and those also feel, especially Secession feels kind of, feels kind of radical, rebellious to smoke it. Uh, I enjoy that. I had a Xeno Platinum one time that a friend sent to me, like an aged, it was like a ridiculously expensive, wonderful, wonderful cigar. Um, that was probably one of the best smokes I've ever had. Um, and I used to be a big fan of the short story by a Fuente um, and really anything in the Hemingway line that they have. I still like those when they're good, but I have to say a Fuente is somewhat inconsistent sometimes. Um, sometimes you'll get a bad one. I don't know if it's just like the leaves are green or something, but um, so off the top of my head, those are the cigars I enjoy. Okay. Uh, Peter Niger asks, again, are you an anarchist? If yes, do you think it would be a good thing if all government institutions uh, disappeared overnight, or do you think a gradual decrease in state power until uh, abolition is a necessary transition? Um, yes, I am an anarchist. Uh, again, if by the word you mean that governance uh, it need not, and in fact is better if it is not monopolized by one entity that has um, a monopoly on the use of force, uh, which is what we typically call governments or states. I think that um, states are the least efficient and most barbaric form of social organization um, and of coordination of competing desires over scarce resources. Uh, I, I think it's it's um, full of bad incentives and. Uh, Markets and voluntary institutions of all kinds. I mean, like Leonard Reed said, anything that's peaceful, um, anything that's peaceful. If you have to put a gun to someone's head uh, in order to get your form of 
you know, social organization to get your plan implemented, um, then it's an inferior plan in terms of both efficiency and morality, in my opinion. And that's what all governments are. So if yes, do you think it would be a good thing if all government institutions disappeared overnight? Or do you think a gradual decrease um, will be necessary? Well, I mean, the good thing is, I don't know if it's good or bad, but this is a complete hypothetical. Uh, it's, it's, there is no option. There is no button. Um, it's not possible for um, any institution to disappear overnight uh, because institutions only exist based on the beliefs of the people within those institutions. Uh, those beliefs shape the incentives that, you know, shape the institutions and determine what's possible. So even for any change to happen in government or any other institution, it requires a change in belief. And everyone is not going to suddenly have <clears throat> completely different beliefs overnight where they all of a sudden feel that the state is immoral and uh, agents who work for the state believe that their job is immoral or whatever, horribly inefficient, um, and they just quit and they leave. Uh, because belief is the necessary thing that needs to change, if those beliefs did change overnight, everything would be fine. It'd be wonderful. I think things would improve. Um, if they didn't change overnight, then you couldn't have government disappear anyway, because as long as people believe it's necessary, it will exist. But I'll still play the game. Uh, yeah, I'd press the button. Get rid of it now. Uh, I think it's one of the greatest perpetrators of evil. It is the greatest perpetrator of evil in human history. By far, nothing holds a candle to the hundreds of millions of lives deliberately murdered, starved, jailed, coerced, oppressed, and tortured. And so many that are still uh, having that done to them today at the hands of the state. All because people believe falsely that the state is necessary. Otherwise, people would all be killing each other in a Hobbesian jungle. Uh, Thomas Hobbes might be one of the most damaging social theorists in history. Um, I would press the button, so to speak. Uh, I feel the same way. You know, it's almost like how people say about uh, when we talk about schools. I think there are major problems with public school. And even if you just like ended them all tonight, today, and no, this is morning, this morning, and uh, there was nothing to replace them with. I think a bunch of kids wandering around doing whatever they want would actually um, benefit them more than uh, being in school as it currently stands. <laughs> so I would, I would rather see what happens. Um, I truly believe that I, I would have thought that was crazy at one point. Okay. Chaz Fensky, how do you get yourself to do things you don't enjoy doing specifically tasks that may take more than a few hours of your life? Oh man. How do you enter into that zone? So if I'm doing like a bunch of data entry or, um, you know, a bunch of sort of accounting related tasks, which I don't like that much. Um, if I'm writing something that I'm not excited about writing and it's going to be long, I mean, writing is not always exciting. In fact, most of the time it's not, uh, even though it feels good afterwards. How do you get into that state where you can just buckle down and do it? Or even like housework. I mean, I don't, I would rather not be like cleaning gutters and, you know, doing things around the house. Um, if, if you ask my wife, she'll say that's why I never do. Um, but so how do I get in that zone to do it? I mean, I usually do like, Music helps, uh, hip hop or uh, like hair metal, either of those get me super hyped up and they have such a like rebellious edge. Like, yeah, you know, throw me in the battle. I'll take on anything, you know, I can do this. And I tell myself crazy stories like, you know, no one else can handle this. Only I can give, throw anything at me, no matter how terrible I'll plow through it because I'm special. I'm different. No, I mean, really, I, <laughs> I get myself hyped up with this sort of rebellious edge. Like if I don't like doing it, but I know it needs to be done. I almost approach it as like, hello, old foe. 
think you can best me again? You know, I get, I try to get like cocky about like me taking on this task. That's not going to beat me. Uh, and that mindset really helps. I mean, to me, it's all about the mindset. So that's probably how I do it. Okay. Final question about adoption. There's two, as I mentioned, and this is, um, gone on a bit longer as usual, my big mouth. Um, the first is from Peter Niger again. Did your libertarian and or religious beliefs have an effect on your decision to adopt your children? Do you recommend other people with a similar worldview adopt instead of having multiple genetic children? Let me first say, um, so my wife and I, uh, we got married very young and we were planning to wait three, four years to have kids and uh, oops, got pregnant accidentally. Uh, (laughs) It was like a year into our, like nine months into our marriage, a year, like a little less than a year. So we had my son and we thought, what the heck, we'll just have, you know, three, four or five kids right in a row because we want our kids to be close in age, be easier. Let's just get it over with now. We'll be young when they're growing. It'll be great. And then we got pregnant again shortly after and had a miscarriage. And then we couldn't get pregnant for about five years. Um, And we tried all kinds of different stuff and looking at different hormonal imbalances uh, that my wife was dealing with and just trying to figure out why it was we couldn't get pregnant. And that was, that was actually a really, really difficult um, time. I mean, not the entire five years, but the, that aspect of it um, emotionally and, and in many ways. And so it basically came down to, we could try something like artificial insemination or in vitro fertilization. Um, and we had both always had this idea that we'd have like three kids and then maybe adopt uh, afterwards years down the road when our kids were older and we were like, why don't we just adopt now? I mean, there are kids out there who need a home and we want children. Uh, so let's do it. Um, so we adopted my daughter Eden and who, uh, is now six. And then, um, we just assumed we'd never be able to get pregnant again. And nine months later, we got pregnant again. <laughs> Huge surprise. And then had my daughter Vienna. So we have a biological son uh, who's 10, uh, adopted daughter who's six, and then a biological daughter who is four. Um, so did my worldview, did my libertarian and or religious beliefs have an impact? Um, I guess only to the extent that I am a big believer in individualism and the sort of um, self-interest rightly, rightly understood, if you will. Um, and I think both of us, my wife and I, we did not adopt with any sense of do-gooderism or like we're trying to do something good for the world or we're adopting because we want to help a child. We adopted for very uh, self-aware, selfish reasons. We know we want more children. We can't have any right now. Let's adopt a child who has a parent that doesn't feel they can raise them. Uh, seems like a good, a good deal all around. Um, and because we went into it, I think selfishly, knowing this was something that we're doing because we want to do, not because we're trying to save the world. Um, I actually think that helps in many ways. I think that helps, at least for me, the outlook. I mean, I kind of see my marriage the same way. Like there was no, you know, we were soulmates. It was destiny that brought us together. God told us to get married. No, we chose to get married. We chose to agree to stick together no matter what. That was our choice. And I'm not going to be able to escape responsibility and be like, you know, God told me to marry her. And then when things get hard, well, who's to blame, you know? So I think taking that ownership and that responsibility um, is huge. So in that sense, I guess our worldview um, affected it, but I don't think it sort of affected the decision to adopt. Really, we just wanted more children. Um, Do I recommend other people adopt instead of having multiple genetic children? You know, it's really interesting. There's something 
in us that wants to have genetic children. Um, and there's something really fascinating, like, okay, what are we going to get if we mix our genes together? This is going to be amazing. And it really is. Um, it's wonderful. It's also incredibly challenging. Adoption is wonderful and also incredibly challenging. I, I don't know if I would say instead of having multiple genetic children, but I would say if you, if you want children, and if A, you really don't want to go through pregnancy or you have health reasons for not wanting to go through pregnancy um, yourself, obviously if you're a woman, but if you're a man too, if, I mean, your pregnancy is a joint venture uh, and it's brutal. <laughs> um, and B, uh, obviously if you can't have children, um, adoption is awesome. I really think more people should do it. I think it shouldn't be treated as such a far away, sacred, like I've got to be in the right position, the right frame of mind. I have to be like, you'll never be ready for children of any kind, uh, adopted or biological. Um, you're never really ready. If you know you want kids, I say, go have some kids. Um, but I'm a little bit impetuous. And then the final question is also on this, um, Susie Wales. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk about what the process was like for you of adoption. How has it been being a transracial family? What joys and struggles has it brought? Uh, I'm especially interested because my husband and I are close to, cut off here, uh, close to being on the list for domestic infant adoption and are open to any race. So yes, my daughter, um, my middle daughter, Eden, the adopted daughter, is she's black and uh, from, from the States here, which is also kind of funny because when we adopted her, it was right around the time that there was a whole bunch of horrible stuff going on in Haiti. And sometimes we'd go places and people would see her, you know, it's a black baby with a white parents. And they would say, oh, oh my gosh, she's so cute. Where's she from? And we'd say, uh, Virginia, because she, <laughs> she was born here in the States. Sometimes people, they have this like look of disappointment that they can't hide. It's like not as cool, not as exotic to them. Like, oh, it's not like Africa or Haiti. People would be like, oh, is she from Haiti? And be like, nope, uh, Falls Church. <laughs> and they're like, oh, oh. And they, some of them would say like, well, that, oh, that's great. That's great too. <laughs> Which is, people are weird. Um, so the process of adoption for us, it was like the fastest process in the history of the planet. Uh, normally there's a waiting list. Um, the average time from when you, you know, go to adopt and, and when you actually have a, a child that you can, you know, have placed with you and, and adopt is like 24 months or something. Part of that's because most people put restrictions on uh, race and gender. Um, my wife and I said any race, any gender, which makes the process a little faster. Um, we were also young, already had a child and, I think that is attractive to the mothers who are uh, the birth mothers, because in our case, uh, the way we did it with the agency, the birth mothers can look at a profile of the families first and then sort of decide. And then we actually met with uh, Eden's birth mother a couple times before she was born. Um, so we, from the day we decided we wanted to go after this and began the process of going to initial informational meetings, filling out paperwork, and there's tons of paperwork, to the day Eden was placed with us, it was five months. I mean, like lightning fast, crazy fast, so fast we could barely catch our breath. And it, it took my wife a, a good bit of time, even after we had Eden to kind of like adjust to it. She said that it was harder for her. It took her a little bit longer to bond with Eden just because it happened so fast and we almost weren't like prepared for it. But I, I loved it. I kind of like it when things move fast. I'm, I'm a very impatient person. Um, so the process initially, just a whole ton of paperwork and ridiculous jumping through hoops and having fingerprints on file with the FBI and having people come visit your home and, you know, make sure that everything is kosher and have, whatever. It's not literally kosher, <laughs> but uh, unless we were going through like a, you know, 
Jewish adoption agency. Um, no, it it really, it's just a it, it's a pain in the butt. A lot of meetings, a lot of uh, the the process is is not easy. Uh, on the flip side, um, you know, it's, it's easier than pregnancy in many ways. Uh, I think it's also very costly. Uh, anywhere from fifteen thousand to fifty thousand uh, dollars in many cases, depending on your income. Um, I would not look at that too much as a hurdle, though. Honestly, we adopted at a time when we were probably the most financially pinched that we've been, or close to it. Um, we borrowed money to adopt, and uh, once you have that kid, it's like, how would you ever regret it? Like, you know, it's not like it's not like paying off a car or a college loan. <laughs> it's it's totally different. I mean, this is a, this is a human life that is, uh, to me, because it's my own child, uh, obviously priceless. And, um, you know, there's never going to be a good time financially either, to be honest, to have kids or to adopt kids. So you just kind of have to do it when it doesn't feel like you're quite capable (laughs) in many cases. Um, okay. Being a transracial family. Yeah. You know, that's something that is, we thought about and we, we talked about a lot beforehand and, and we're like, okay, are we comfortable with any race, any gender? And both of us just felt like, yeah, of course, why not? I mean, it's, it's a child and you know, what's, uh, I don't care. Like I'm, I'm, I hate collectivism. I hate it with a passion. Um, I don't even care about like, like I'm not even into my own heritage and ancestry. Like I don't get, I don't get excited about like, oh yes, I'm part Hungarian. Like I feel this connection. And maybe I'm too individualistic in that way. Um, but the idea of not wanting to have a child because they're of a certain race just seems absurd to me. And I'm not saying that in a judgy way because let's be real, there are real costs and challenges to living in, in our case, a predominantly white uh, culture and experience and having a daughter who is black or any other uh, combination, they all have their own unique challenges. And those challenges can be, those could be too much. I, I get that. I'm not, I'm, I do not judge anyone who feels like, I mean, just, just like my wife and I were unsure whether or not we would be up for adopting a child that had severe like physical or um, you know emotional or, or, or mental issues. We just didn't know if we were in a place we were so young, we felt like we barely knew what we we're doing as parents. We still don't. Um, so I get that. Like there are certain levels of challenge where you feel like you're not equipped for it and that you would not do a good job. I'm not judging um, in that way. But how has it actually been? Um, well, the first thing, uh, learning how to do my daughter's hair was, was and is a uh, huge challenge. I used to be able to do it somewhat and try, but it's gone way beyond my skills and abilities. And my wife has spent a lot of time on the website, uh, Chocolate Hair Vanilla Care, <laughs> which is a great website, and learned uh, how to do my daughter's hair. And she told me the first, the first day that a, a black woman uh, complimented her on Eden's hair, um, she was like, I can die a happy woman. Like that was it. It took so long. <laughs> Typically it was like, you know, we go to the store and we just sort of get looks from, uh, from black women <laughs> or they would come up to her and be like, Hey, you know, there's a product you could try. Um, basically like, okay, you don't know what you're doing here. You're in over your head, which was very true. Um, there are definitely times and I don't think we experience it as much now, or at least I don't, but my wife has gotten it way more than I have way more where, um, which are, you know how it is being a parent. If someone like accuses your kid of stealing a toy from another kid, you feel defensive, let alone if they give you dirty looks that carry with them the weight of the implication that they think you're a bad person for even having that child. And that, I don't want to over sensationalize, but that definitely, that definitely has happened. Um, predominantly 
it tends to be like black women kind of looking and seeing, you know, who is this white family? Who is this white girl trying to raise this, this black girl? Um, you know, and I, I mean, I get that. I get the, I get the, the feeling of, you know, seeing us, we're about the most suburban white bread looking, you know, (laughs) people you can imagine raising this black girl. Um, so we get looks sometimes, dirty looks uh, a little bit, sometimes uh, rude comments, not too often, um, you know, or, or sometimes, you know, older um, older white people will sort of look at us funny or or even people who are trying to be kind will treat my daughter Eden um, slightly different, like slightly like more special or or less capable, not in conscious ways necessarily, but just like she visibly stands out from the other kids she's a different race and in their mind probably anyone they've interacted with who's black they view somehow differently there's a different culture there whatever it is i don't, I don't want to again say that people are like they're horrible awful racist people um it's it's just interesting you just see some some weird behaviors and weird like assumptions i kind of think built into people's actions um, so that can be a challenge. That can be a challenge. And for us, it's always hard too. like, to what extent, you know, because I, like I said, I'm so individualistic and so like, whatever, who cares, whatever race, you know, it doesn't matter. But I've had to kind of learn that there are ways in which I think it is and will be important for my daughter to, to learn things that she wouldn't learn if we were just going about our normal life the way that we normally would um, because, because we are so white largely that you know she's not around that many black people and that not exposed to that much of black culture and i think as my friend tk coleman says um and and he's black so he has you know this this experience of he says when you're always a contrast to the perceived norm you can't be colorblind when you're black and you're in a community that's all white, you can't be colorblind because you're constantly aware of the fact that you are a contrast to the perceived norm. And so I know that my daughter is having that experience at times, and I don't think it's a negative experience largely, but she's aware that she looks different from everyone else. And she knows she's adopted, obviously, and we talk about that. Um, but, you know, she'll, I, I just notice, like, as she gets older, she'll watch, she'll watch black families very closely. And she notices that and she's sort of, you know, interested in that in a way, kind of from afar. Um, and so I, my wife and I, you know, we're, we're just sort of trying to think about if there's more that we can or should be doing. Again, I'm one that like, I don't really find it like, I don't feel this urge to, to make this conversation about race and let's talk about the fact that you're black and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I want to kind of follow her lead and I don't want her ever to feel ashamed. Like our family is so colorblind that we're like, no, what do you mean? There are differences between the races. No, let's not talk about that. Because like if she feels something and she's interested in something, I want her to feel complete freedom there. Um, so we're still kind of trying to figure out how to, how to deal with that. It's, it's an adventure. Um, I wouldn't say it's any more or less difficult than children in general. It's just, that's the unique type of challenge with her being adopted and us being a, a transracial family. Um, I feel like there's one more thing I was going to say on this that I am that I'm not remembering right now. Um, but for the life of me, I can't remember. So I suppose I suppose that's it. Um, 
there are there are a couple of good books on that that we read early on in the adoption process. Now I can't remember the names of any of them, um, but I would not let I would not let fear of the transracial thing uh, dissuade you from being open to adopting any race. Um, I really think. I really think the challenges of children are they're there no matter what the circumstance is to, to varying degrees, obviously. Uh, so in what, how those manifest um, may be different in each case. But I think, again, you're never going to be fully prepared. That's kind of the point. It's like entrepreneurship, starting a business, having kids, they're things you're just never going to be prepared for. Um, if you know, you've got it in your heart, you want to do it. I say go do it. All right, this was a way too long episode. Uh, sorry for that, if anyone is still listening, if you're out there. Um, thanks for the great questions. IsaacMorehouse.com is where you can submit some more of your own. And I look forward to the next time. <laughs>